on the, the screen at the back. Psalm 19, one to four says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. Martin just said there that um, uh, to give you prior warning to pray. In Africa they don't even give you prior warning to speak. Okay, I got this whisper in your ear saying, um, can you share for 20 minutes uh, now? <laughs> like, oh, okay, <laughs> here we go. Um, this is a little bit more prepared though, so uh, good morning. Uh, have we got a, the slides on there? Fantastic, great. Um, we're looking today uh, at science and reason, and I, I grew up as a, as a keen, with a very keen interest in maths and in science, uh, fascinated by how things worked in our world and in our universe. And I was the kid with the chemistry set, I was the kid with the microscope, um, and even with the telescope. Um, and uh, it didn't quite look like this, but when I was about 12, I put all my savings together, which came to £12.95, which seemed like a lot of money at the day, and uh, I thought I bought a semi-decent telescope. It probably looks more like that. So that I wanted to find this comet that apparently was out there. I never did find it, but at least I tried and I was enthusiastic. Now, I, I didn't have a Christian faith growing up, um, but I, uh, and, and people at school who were Christians or called themselves Christians, I really struggled with them uh, big time um, because they didn't seem to really think things through. They seemed to have a very simplistic view of the world and the universe, slightly naive at times. And so for me to, to even consider Christianity, it seemed that like I had to take my brain out and leave it at the door of the church. And uh, that didn't seem to be how I was made uh, in, all, in all of that. However, to cut out a very long story short, um, I eventually became a Christian about age 19, 20, and, and actually I've realized I've got to use my brain even more as a Christian than I ever have done uh, before, so I definitely didn't leave it uh, at the church door when I became a Christian. But I did have to come to the point of understanding that even though I was trying to understand all the mechanisms of life, biology, chemistry, physics, all of that, that at the end of the day, they didn't answer the questions of meaning. A uh, much more important question. This is Stephen Hawking, and this is what he says. It might surprise you. Um, Science cannot speak to the deepest needs of men and women or help with the moral dilemmas of mankind. So he's aware of the limitations of that. And so I was thinking to myself, am I just around here for 70 years plus, and that's it? Is that all that life is about? You know, what is the purpose? What is the meaning? And so that got me thinking about all of that. But I also began to realize that if I could understand everything about God, then God would be no bigger than my mind. What kind of God would that be? And so there's, I've got lots of questions and lots of issues that you kind of put into a room and, and God begins to answer them as you go through life and begin to work things through uh, later on. Isaiah 55 says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, which is pretty high, so are my, way, my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, says the Lord. But as a Christian and as a new Christian, I then continued in science and I went to university, I did a microbiology degree, I did a doctorate in cell biology here in Birmingham, I did two years postdoctoral research and uh, thoroughly enjoyed all of that. And seeing the beauty of the world um, from a design perspective, you know, the intr incredible intricacies that we see in our world of mechanism, but also realizing that I had the ability to appreciate it 
And that ability to appreciate beauty and design is also God-given as that. So as a biologist, for example, we would study the why and hows of autumn leaves. And you've noticed the autumn leaves lately. And we would understand the cell mechanisms of senescence and, and uh, what happens and why trees do it, how they do it, how the leaves do that, and all that, fascinated by all of that. But as a keen photographer, I also love just taking pictures of autumn leaves with a blue sky behind it. And I just like the color. And uh, it doesn't take you very long when you're looking at a tree to realize that the dog beside you is not really interested in the color of the autumn leaves. He's only interested in that tree for a very different purpose, and it isn't that. Okay, there's something in the human, uh, human design that gives us the ability to want to understand and, and see the appreciate design and beauty that is all around us. And so the question is, where does that come from? And I think very often Christianity in relation to science feels like it's on the back foot. But there are so many ethical and moral issues around surround the future of how science is used and how science is misused that actually puts Christianity very much on the front foot. And Jesus really is a game changer in this. So I want to look at both how we have sometimes ended up on the back foot, but also begin to look at how faith in God has significantly both influenced science in the past and needs to influence it in the future. So sometimes in history, science and faith have appeared to be in conflict. There's a famous situation uh, of Galileo. Many of you will have heard of Galileo. He was a, an Italian mathematician and astronomer in the 17th century. And he heard about the invention of the telescope in 1609 and decided he would, he would build his own one. And he, went, he built a better one, and he went on and discovered many things that we take for granted today, like this craters on the moon, that the earth goes round the sun, all of that sort of stuff. But the view of his time was that the earth didn't go round the sun. The view of the time, the scientific view, was that the, the sun went round the earth, because that's what it looks like. That's what it appears to do. That was the scientific view of the day, that it was earth-centered. And the church of the day backed that scientific view. So Psalm 104, verse 5, for example. So that's, a, that's one of the old models of everything goes around the earth. Psalm 104, 5. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. And so the church looked at what seemed to be scientific evidence for, for things. And it also looked at this verse and thought, well, Scripture seems to teach that the earth cannot be moved. Now, we now know that today means it's, it's relative to us. You know, you can't push the earth <laughs> and make a difference to it. But... They took that and thought, well, Scripture appears to say this. Science seems to say that, you know, you would, so for example, the earth is traveling at 70,000 miles per hour. That's pretty fast. You think you would notice something like that when you got up in the morning, wouldn't you? Yeah, we're completely oblivious to it because of the way that things work. And so uh, there was that, that kind of battle going on. Galileo had this sun-centered view. He was accused of, of heresy because of it. He was forbidden from teaching or advocating the theories. And it's not that the church was anti-science. The church had actually uh, sponsored astro astronomy for four or five hundred years. But it had taken a different scientific view of the day and scripture appeared to back it up. But they were wrong. And the Psalms are written as poetry. The Psalms are not written as literal scientific descriptions. So, for example, you know, Robert Burns uh, wrote this, my love is like a red, red rose. Okay, he was not inferring that his girlfriend had crinkly bits and prickles. Okay. So, scripture has to be read with the utmost of respect. 
Because the Bible is not a book, it's a library. It's a library of 66 books. And there are different genres there. There's poetry, there's prose, there are stories, there's history. St. Augustine said this, if scripture appears to contradict well-established other forms of knowledge, then re-examine that passage, which is obviously what we need to do with Psalm 104, verse five, and understand what it's saying. Calvin's notion of accommodation. Scripture does not teach astronomy. Instead, the writers make it accessible to people. And so actually, it's not God or science. It's not God or nature, but God has chosen to work through nature. He is the ordainer, he is the sustainer, and he works in many ways through nature in all of that. So even in the book of Genesis, we read this, Genesis chapter one and verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures. Let the land produce living creatures. That appears to talk about nature. That appears to talk about an element of natural process in there. The next verse, which is a parallel verse to this, says this, God made the wild animals. God made the wild animals. And Genesis sees no contradiction between these two verses. So let's just look at the history of science um, a little bit. Because the word science, um, some of you may know, means knowledge. And so we get words like uh, conscience, conscience, okay, which means with knowledge. And it's not just factual knowledge, it's moral knowledge. It's, it's the knowledge of good, what's right and what's wrong. And uh, in fact, the original sciences were things like theology. So theology was known as the queen of the sciences. And she had a sister called Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom, which is where we get philosophy from. Philosophy, okay, the love of Sophie, <laughs> the love of wisdom, philosophy. And so we had these two sciences, theology and philosophy. And things like the arts, were that comes from the word artificial. And so that was things like architecture and things like technology, where things are artificially created, if you like. And so the word science in its modern meaning, natural sciences, started only about 1850. It's a fairly recent kind of thing. And it might surprise you to learn that it grew out of people who had a Judeo-Christian faith. For out of people who believed uh, in a God. And many of the forerunners of, of science were ordained priests, they were clergymen, they were monks, um, they were Jewish and Christian believers. So for example, Gregor Mendel, you may have heard of Mendel, uh, who formed you know, modern genetics. He was a monk um, at, uh, the, at the St. Thomas Abbey in Bernal. There was Isaac Newton, you know, we've heard of Newton. He had strong theological side to him as well as the physics. Galileo talked about the book of nature and the book of supernature, referring to the Bible. Kepler, he spoke of scientific discovery as thinking God's thoughts after him. So discovering what God has already kind of done, if you like. Michael Faraday pioneered electromagnetism and electricity that we take for granted today. And today, from the, the great scholars of Cambridge University, they have the Faraday Institute. And that is the Faraday Institute of Science and Religion, named after Michael Faraday because he combined deep religious faith with an outstanding scientific career. And there was a reason for the developments of science, and it was to do with their understanding of God. Because they believed in God and they believed in one God. 
not many gods, like many people in many parts of the world, and that created the right environment for modern science to develop. So firstly, because of uniformity, because God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So fundamentally, things don't change. So there are fundamental things at work in our, our world and our universe that don't change. So unlike the fickle Greek and Roman gods, if you were walking around on a mountaintop and you found a rock with a fish in it, right, they would think, oh, that's just the gods playing tricks on us. They're messing around with each other. That's why there's a fish in a rock on the top of a mountain miles from the sea. But these guys wouldn't think like that. They think, no, there's got to be a reason. How, how did that fish get into that rock? And how did it get to the top of a mountain that's miles from the sea? Something has happened here. And they would start to investigate in all of that because they didn't believe in a God that played tricks on them, but a God of order and of uniformity. They believed in a rational God, a God of careful design, of, of reason, an intelligent creator, you know, the heavens declare the work of his hands. You know, the, it tells us something of what he has done. And therefore, they expected to find reasons of why things worked um, as they did. They believed in a transcendent God, okay, a creator who was different from his creation. Okay? He was separate from his creation. He was distinct from his creation. Unlike other religions where people believe, in fact, even this taxi driver I was talking to the other day, believed that God was in everything. God is in the tree. God was in this. God was in that. But if, if God is in those things, you can't start cutting it up and doing experiments on them. Okay? Otherwise, it's like the sacred cow in Hinduism. You can't do experiments on it. Okay? But because God is different, God is separate, then we are allowed to slice up his creation. We are allowed to investigate it and analyze it. Here's a quote. Um, I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon and the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts the rest of details. Now you would expect that to have come from, I don't know, maybe a, you know, a clergyman, a minister. Isaac Newton, sorry, um, Albert Einstein. Just testing you. Here's a guy with a Judeo faith background. He believed in a, in a God in all of this. And he went on to say this, he said, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind, okay? And my guess is that every one of us is guilty of one of those, okay? So which one of those are you more guilty of in life? You can think about that. But science today is the study of the material world, the things that we can touch, the things we can see, the world of nature. But questions about God are about things that are other than nature, the non-material world. Um, but it was the people of faith, and especially Christian faith, who believed that the world and universe was not incomprehensible, but we could, believe, we could understand it. Maybe not yet, but we will begin to understand it. And so the first scientists, the first universities, were all faith-based. You know, 20, 30% of them were ordained in the church. That was the way that it was. But all the great scientists, whether of faith or not, also understood the limitations of science. Because science is just one tool in the box to pursue knowledge and to pursue truth. And there are many others in our world. And together, all of these tools, if you like, lead us hopefully towards truth. And different things require different tools. So my recommendation was if you wanna fix a clock, don't use a hammer, okay? Unless it's one of those clocks that starts chiming at six o'clock in the morning, in which case you're welcome 
to take a hammer to it. I'm not sure it'll fix it, but it'll, it'll fix it in another way. Okay, you recommend a clockmaker's screwdriver if you want to fix a clock. Special tool, different situations. And so science is one tool in the box. And it's not a tool that works in trying to prove or disprove God. There's also many different types of knowledge that we're looking for. There's mathematical knowledge, you know, two plus two equals four. That's mathematical knowledge. There's scientific knowledge, which is experimental. Um, so, for example, you know, Isaac Newton's sitting there and an apple falls off a tree. And it always seems to fall in the same direction. And if you dig a hole, it, it carries on falling towards the center of the earth. And he starts coming up with this theory of gravity and he repeats it and it seems to be right. That's experimental scientific knowledge. There's also personal knowledge, which is experiential knowledge. And the classic example of somebody trying to put personal experience into scientific description is the kiss. Have you heard this? The approach of two pairs of lips with reciprocal transmission of microbes and carbon dioxide. Stunningly, you know. Just let me tell you, if that's your experience of a kiss, you're missing something. But the God of the scriptures is a personal God. He's a relational God. And therefore, it's, it's personal knowledge that we're to, to know him, as well as being the creator and sustainer of all things. But God is not nestled somewhere in the faith and religion bit. Okay? If there is a God, and the God that we read of in the Bible, then he exists and, as creator and designer of all of this. Okay? He's, he's, in, he's brought history, he's brought language, he's brought science, he's brought all of these things to help us with different tools to understand our world. Science cannot speak to the deepest needs of men and women. It is only one tool in the box. Um, here's an article from the Times. Scientists or anyone else without religion have to face a world in which there is no real purpose, no meaning to torment and joy, and accept that when we are dead we vanish and that there is no afterlife. Because science has very little to say to these deep levels of human experience. Okay, it can't really deal with problems of loneliness and of people's lives broken by grief. Okay, science can't solve the moral dilemmas of our world. Okay, it has no answer to unforgiven sin and guilt. And I believe, though, that even within science, there are significant signposts that just point us to the fingerprints of God in our world. I just want to cover these very briefly. But it may be firstly the Goldilocks effect. Do you know the Goldilocks effect? Everything in this universe is just right. It's not too hot, it's not too cold. Okay? And the, the precision of the facts and figures of the universal constants and things that are involved in physics are so ridiculously and unfathomably precise to enable us to exist. Right? And scientists are perplexed and bemused and therefore now understand or believe, even if they don't believe in a God, they believe there is intelligent design somewhere in our universe, um, specifically designed to support and nourish human life, the Goldilocks effect. Secondly, there's the complexities of our body. You know, think of the size of a grand piano, 240 strings on a grand piano, and it takes a skilled musician to play the beautiful music that comes off it. The tiny human ear, and I mean tiny, okay, has 24,000 screens. This is a, an electron microscope version of it. And it listens to that music, and then it's able to appreciate the beauty of that music. Incredible complexities of our body. 
There's our conscience, a built-in moral compass system, if you like, in our lives. It's not perfect. Um, it doesn't always point to true north, perhaps, but we have a strong sense of right and wrong. We have a strong sense of justice and injustice. And we, there's a real experience of guilt in our lives when we cross boundaries. That all point towards a moral creator in a moral universe. Where does that come from? And then fourthly, God has spoken. He's spoken through human history through the Jewish uh, nation in the Old Testament. He's speaking through Jesus Christ who came to show us what God was like and is recorded in the Gospels and the New Testament. And yet most people haven't even read it. You know, if, if there's one book on the planet you think people would just check out to see what is life about, then at least we would have a look at that. So these signposts in our, in our world that actually do point us towards the reality of God. But what about the challenges of today? How does this affect the 21st century? Because just as faith informed the scientists that pioneered modern science, we desperately need faith to inform our science today. Christians who are scientists, that will be game changers in the 21st century and beyond because there are huge issues, huge ethical challenges that face humankind. So I just wanna mention a couple of examples, tasters if you like this morning. The first is big data. So all data that is stored on the, on the cloud in data lakes as they call them, you know, what you eat and buy because you've got a supermarket store card is all recorded. Where you go with your phone data, um, what you think, what you believe with your Facebook posts and your tweets, you know, who you know on your contacts list, the, how you spend with the bank information, what, what websites you visit, what you download, what you upload. It's all out there in cyberspace. And big data starts analyzing all of our behavior patterns and starts predict predicting how we will behave and, and how we can be targeted in all sorts of ways. Now that can be incredibly helpful. Let me give you an example. So post-traumatic stress for soldiers. They've found an app or they've designed an app that basically gives them telltale signs of if somebody leaning into uh, post-traumatic stress because they can tell how much social contact is someone having. Okay, they can tell where they're going. Are they always spending time inside? Um, it finds out how much exercise they're taking because you know, you've got your stepometer or whatever. And this app analyzes that and then a support worker can, can start to spot telltale signs. So big data can be used in very helpful ways to do that. It can be used to spot abnormalities in behavior and potentially stop terrorist activity. Um, again, very, very helpful. But then there's this guy Snowden. Do you know you hear about Snowden? There's a new feature film coming out about him. He was the IT systems administrator employed by the US National Security Agency, the NSA. And he decided to download and leak to the media what they were up to because they were monitoring millions of Americans and what they were doing. He had breached Yahoo and Google and others and all of that. The misuse of information and our privacy. Tesco Bank compromised recently when information gets into the wrong hands and thousands of pounds gets taken out of bank accounts. Big data is worth billions of pounds. That's what companies will pay for this. Advertisers, um, because it finds patterns so that they can target us. And so just even last month, there was a symposium discussing the pervasiveness of big data in society today the complexity of balancing our need for security and our desire for, desire for privacy, and the importance of ethically managing potentially intrusive data. 
Because there are real implications of all of that data that is embedded in your phone, in every call, in every picture you post. There's all sorts of stuff in there um, about our interactions with the world. And the challenges of scientific knowledge and capability are outrunning the ethics of doing things in the right way. Let me tell you about another area. Um, imagine a scenario whereby kids are never born with abnormalities. Okay? Now on the surface that sounds, surely that's a good thing. Surely that is a good thing. Many, many things. Good genes. Everybody's got good genes. So the technical term for this is eugenics. Okay? Good genes. It means everyone's born well, as it were. And the era of designer babies is upon us. It's fast arriving. Now it's actually eugenics has been around for a long time. And eugenics is the social philosophy that advocates the improvement of the human genetic condition by promoting, so people who've got good genes, and we define those in some way, have more kids, and people who don't have good genes, then let's, let's limit how many kids or don't have kids. Okay, so that's the things with desired traits, we promote things with undesired traits, we, we don't. And the advances in science are creating options today. So today's IVF technology already allows us to screen embryos for inherited diseases such as cystic fibrosis. And a lot of people in our world will say that that's a good thing to do. Maybe, maybe that is a good thing to do. But soon people will be able to, parents will be able to check for all sorts of traits, hair color, character, okay, and potentially choose their perfect child. Um, this is a Stanford professor. The next couple of generations may be the last to accept potluck with procreation. Doing so, he adds, may soon be seen as downright irresponsible. And he's got a book coming out called The End of Sex in which he explains a world where mothers will be given a menu with various biological options. It won't be referred to as eugenics, it'll be referred to as the new biosciences. But historically, there are lessons to learn from this because eugenics got a bad name from Nazi Germany, okay, because they wanted a pure race. And so they started to work on that. They would you know, kill people that had undesirable traits and they would promote reproduction with those who had desirable traits. But embarrassingly, the UK and the US were also seriously discussing this stuff. When Churchill was Home Secretary, he wrote to the Prime Minister, urging him to do more to stop the multiplication of the unfit. Others talked about the sterilization of those not considered desirable as parents. In fact, a paper went before Parliament in the 30s, um, which was, was actually blocked, but it was, it was on serious discussion. Eugenics were considered actually to stand for someone's belief in science and rationalism. Surely this is the best way to move forward for the human race and be liberated from all the religious qualms and boundaries that it would bring. But these arguments are reappearing. So there's a guy called Adam Perkins, he's a lecturer at King's College in London, and he's, he's authored this report called The Welfare Trait, it's a play on the welfare state, and he advises governments, and he's published studies on what he calls the employment resistant. So he sees employment resistant, people who don't want to work, as an undesirable trait, because it costs us welfare and all of that sort of thing. And uh, they reckon that there's, there's both a genetic element to that, and also the fact that if you're brought up in a, a home where it's a workless home, then you're more likely to be workless in the future. So both a bit of nature and a bit of nurture. So he estimates 98,000 extra people were created by the welfare state over the last 15 years. 
due to the rise in welfare spending. So a family gets more money, therefore it can afford to have more children, therefore it has more employment-resistant children. Okay, this is, this is what this is about, because they've grown up in workless homes. So he's, he's done all of that. And they represent what he calls an ever greater burden on the more functional citizens. Okay? He even puts a £12,000 a head annual cost on such people of what they will cost welfare, as in the taxpayer, and perhaps what they'll cost in crime that they, he considers they will commit. And his remedy is that the government restricts welfare so that claimants have fewer children and it's a perfect eugenic solution. So science has now identified genes that relate to alcoholism, to criminality, even sporting success. And the question is, what are the moral obligations to improve society and what are the ethical boundaries that need to be challenged? Science without religion is lame, even dangerous, but religion without science is blind. And the value of people as we've looked at, that Jesus demonstrated was it doesn't matter whether you're a priest or a leper, you're of equal value, okay? We don't get to choose on those things. And so Jesus is a game changer in science even today because of 21st century ethics. And as Christians um, and science, we are not on the back foot, okay? Morals and ethics put Christians very much on the front foot. And public opinion on these things is really gonna count and Christians need to be involved in shaping that. As I come to a close, I, my mom, some of you will know that my mom died earlier uh, this term. And uh, one of the things about my mom was she was, as a kid, she was a hurdler. Okay, she, was, she loved running and she was a hurdler. And it kind of summed up her life because she faced many, many hurdles in her life. Uh, her mom died when she was two. Um, she fell on an open fire when she was three. She fell uh, through a frozen pond when she was a kid. She was skating where she shouldn't be and nearly drowned and probably should have drowned but for a friend. Um, her house was bombed several times during the war. Um, they were underground at the time. She had polio as a kid. She had rheumatic fever as a kid. She had diphtheria as a kid and she had scarlet fever. In fact, the only thing we reckon she didn't succumb to was the bad dose of night fever in the 1970s. But... Um, when she had diphtheria, they called the priest. They thought she was going to die. And uh, it was only because of penicillin that she survived. Penicillin was this new antibiotic that had been trialed with the, in the trenches and in the, with the soldiers and seemed to be having great effect. And, and penicillin rescued her. This antibiotic, this great antibiotic, literally saved her life. And she effectively lived through the age of the antibiotic. Towards the end of her life, she had, she had a lot of, wrestled with a lot of lung problems, continual lung infections and other infections, and antibiotics were basically a staple diet for her um, in the last few years. But ironically, antibiotic resistance, which we now face, meant that ultimately they were unable to cure her and enable her to carry on living forever and ever. And she was somebody who marveled at science. She genuinely marveled at the medical world, the breakthroughs, the benefits. But she also knew that while the best of this world is both brilliant, ultimately it fails. Because she always used to hold on to the things of this world lightly and put her hope in the one who doesn't fail. And as the Gospel of John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, and I love that word, 
whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And my mom's final hurdle as a hurdler and ours is death itself. And even that one can be overcome but it won't be overcome by science and cryogenics and freezing people and all of that. It can only be overcome in Jesus Christ, whosoever we are.